Let's pray together. Father, we do long for the day when we will weep no more, but we will feast together at your table, all together, united, hearts intense on you and Christ. Father, I pray in advance of that day that you would help us to set our hearts on the things above. Help us to seek first your righteousness. Lord, make us into the image of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to march in our place in triumphal procession. Help us, Lord, we pray. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Over the years, I've marveled at some of the stories that my parents have told me about what it was like in the South growing up in the 1950s and 60s. Jim Crow was king then. Everything was segregated, and often in some of the most racially degrading ways imaginable. Separate water fountains, separate bathroom facilities, separate restaurants, separate schools, even separate churches. There was an idea abroad that was unquestioned and assumed almost everywhere if you lived in the South, and that was that whites were superior, blacks were lesser, and they were separate for these reasons, for this reason. And so we had an entire social order organized around this racist point of view. And the fundamental injustice of it was so hardwired into the culture that white people especially were hardly aware of it. My mom told me about what it was like when she was a little girl riding the city bus to and from school with her friends in Jackson, Tennessee. Routinely after school, she and her little friends would come bouncing onto the bus and as they got onto the bus, the older black women would get up and go to the back and mom would, and her friends, they would take their seats. And they did this week after week after week. And when mom, told, when mom told me about this, she can hardly talk about it now without getting emotional about it because now she sees the profound indignity of it. Now she sees the fundamental injustice of it, of grown women making way for children because their race supposedly made them better and it was embedded into the law. Now she sees that those women were coming from a long day at work and were probably tired and here they are having to move to the back. And yet they made way for these little white girls every time. So when mom talks about it now, she gets a little weepy about it. It was so wrong and it's so clear to see now. But when she was a little girl, it wasn't clear. It was just the way that things were. The fundamental injustice was everybody's worldview and it was woven into the fabric of life. And a little white girl getting onto the bus would no more be aware of the daily indign indignity to black people than a fish would be aware of, of water. And yet, 
And yet, by the time my parents were raising me, everything had changed for them. Changed for my mom, had changed for my dad. By the time they were raising me, they had named and renounced that racial injustice that they grew up in. Their position against that kind of racism was very clear to them and very clear to me in, in terms of what they taught me and, and said to me. The question is, was what changed? What changed for them? You know, from the years from when they were children to, to when they were, they were adults. And I asked my dad that question one time years ago. You know what his answer was? He said, he said, the more we actually saw what was happening to black people, the more we realized that this was just fundamentally wrong. They just didn't see it. They were like fish, you know, not being aware of what. Once they saw it, they understood that it was wrong. Well, what were they seeing? They were seeing things unfold around them. They were seeing things like Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on the bus and then being arrested for it. They were seeing Bull Connor allow mobs of white people to beat and brutalize the Freedom Riders in Alabama. They saw peaceful demonstrators brutalized by state troopers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. And all of a sudden, folks with Christian consciences, like my parents, began to see things the way they were. And they began to be fish who were very much aware of the water that they were in. And the fish began to realize that the water needed to be cleansed. Cleansed of racial hatred and partiality. And the bottom line is this. The suffering of those peaceful demonstrators became the catalyst that transformed the conscience, not only of my parents, but of an entire nation. The cause of truth and justice was carried on the backs of really courageous people who were willing to suffer, and their suffering became the means of victory and triumph for their cause. Now, we're all familiar with that story of the civil rights movement and, and how that unfolded, but it shouldn't be a surprise to us that suffering leads to triumph. That fundamental idea should not be surprised to us as Christians we more than anyone ought to know that God himself works this way in this broken world. And he works this way especially when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the truth that he wants to be shed abroad in the world. God works this way in a broken world. And of course Jesus told us that it would be this way. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We know that Jesus told us as Christians that there can be no crown before a cross. Yet how many of us are running from this? How many of us are hoping that we will be the exceptions to this? when it comes to indignities that we may have to face because of our association with the gospel. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should be seeking out conflict. We should not be seeking out conflict. We should be praying to be able to live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and all contentment. So we should never be seeking out conflict. But how many of us are, are going to be willing to stand when the conflict comes to us? And the Bible everywhere is telling us that there is conflict coming towards us. How many of us are going to be willing to stand 
when that happens, to risk the things that we hold dear, to risk the people that we hold dear, when standing for the truth of the gospel becomes costly. If this question hasn't occurred to you, it needs to occur to you now. Because we are living in a time when the world's antipathy towards the Christian faith is increasing and their tolerance towards the Christian faith is decreasing. Which means their tolerance towards us in many quarters is decreasing. The ground is moving beneath our feet and we need to ask ourselves, are we ready for this? Are we ready to stand? Are we ready to stand alone? Are we ready to suffer? If you haven't already, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. Up until this point in the letter, Paul's been narrating this back and forth between him and the Corinthians through a series of events that we've considered closely in the previous messages. This relationship between Paul and the Corinthians has been strained. Questions have emerged concerning his apostleship and authority. So Paul's going to spend a good amount of time in the rest of this letter defending his authority as an apostle because this is now sort of, it had come in question. And that begins in earnest in the, pa in the passage that we're beginning today. And Paul makes the argument that in spite of appearances, in spite of his suffering and weakness... God is triumphing in Christ through his ministry. God is triumphing in Christ through Paul's ministry. And you're going to see that Paul explains this in, in three steps. This is how we'll look at it this morning. He's going to, we're going to see Paul's triumph in verses 12 through 14. Paul's revelation in verses 15 through 16. And Paul's integrity in verse 17. So first of all, Paul's triumph in verses 12 to 14. Everybody look at verse 12. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me for the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, Troas is a, was a city on the northwestern coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And it's just across the Aegean Sea from Macedonia, where we know of as modern-day Greece. Paul goes to Troas to preach the gospel, and he found that the Lord had opened the door for him to do this, which means that he had wonderful opportunities to preach the gospel. Nevertheless, while he's there and all these wide-open doors are open before him, He's having a hard time keeping his mind on the work, he says, because he was pressed in his spirit about what was going on in Corinth. He had sent Titus to Corinth with that painful letter. Remember, he had that horrible visit, and there was rebellion against him. And so to respond to this, he sends Titus back with this letter from Paul to correct them and correct this anonymous individual who had risen up against him. And so when Paul goes to Troas, he still didn't know what the outcome of that letter was that he had sent with, with Titus. He didn't yet know how Titus would be received. And so preaching the gospel in Troas was not a distraction from the angst that he still lived with concerning the Corinthians. Would they receive Titus? Would they reaffirm their love for Paul? Or would they reject 
Titus and the letter that Paul sent through him. So all Paul can do at this point is wait. He's troubled in his spirit until he gets news one way or the other. So he decides not to wait for Titus anymore in Troas, and he travels to Macedonia on the other side of the Aegean Sea. And we know from chapter 7 and verses 5 through 7 that Paul continued to be anxious once he got to Macedonia until he finally connects with Titus. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 5 through 7, Paul says this, and I'll just read it to you. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without in fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So when Paul reconnects with Titus, it's good news. It's good news about the Corinthians. He learns that the Corinthians have responded with repentance and are once again the children of their spiritual father, Paul. Paul's afflicted, he says, fightings without and fear within. And then the triumph arrives. When, when Titus arrives with this news, the gospel still prevails in Corinth. And so it's no surprise what Paul says next in verse 14. Everybody look at verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus, or who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul offers thanks to God for once again proving triumphant in and through his own suffering as an apostle. No matter how bad things get for Paul, the gospel nevertheless marches forth. And you won't grasp what Paul is saying here unless you grasp the image that he's trying to draw here with his words. At first blush, you might be, misread that phrase that said that he leads us in triumphal procession. Sounds kind of like this you know, victory march, you know? Um, it, you know, like Paul's just marching from victory to victory in his ministry. But anybody who knows what happened to Paul and even what no, anybody that knows what happened to him in Macedonia knows that he went through all kinds of angst and suffering while he was in Macedonia and, and elsewhere. And so this victory to victory idea is really not the whole story. So it's really important to see the image that Paul draws with that word that's translated as leads us in triumphal procession. The word actually refers to an ancient Roman ritual that conquering generals, conquering Roman generals, they would engage in after they vanquished enemy armies. After a great victory, the Roman conqueror would ride through the streets of Rome in a chariot drawn by four horses. Somebody's favorite movie was Gladiator, wasn't it, a minute ago? There's actually a brief scene in that movie Gladiator of a Roman triumph uh, where um, Commodus, who was one of the worst emperors of all time, but when Commodus comes uh, marching into Rome and he's in a chariot and there's actually four horses uh, it's a brief scene, but if you've seen that, you've seen a little bit of, of what we, we're talking about here. So the conqueror would lead a procession through the city, through these cheering throngs of, of Romans, celebrating the victory for Rome. This was a common image that was known abroad in the Roman world in that day. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And so behind the conqueror and his army followed this train of conquered foes and the spoils that they had taken from war. And the Romans would sometimes select some of the best and the strongest from the conquered army and put them out to display in this Roman triumphal procession. They, did, they, get, they would get the best and the strongest, and they would even include the king that they had just vanquished. And they would put them before the people because the more glorious those people looked, the more glorious the conqueror looked in defeating them. So they're always taking these kings through the streets along with their conquered armies. And they, were, they would be dragged through the city in shackles like they were slaves because at that point, they were slaves. Even the king of the vanquished nation was a slave at that point. And at the end of the parade, guess what happened to the conquered king? They killed him. He would be executed. And so this Roman conqueror is coming in in all this festal glory into the city. And he would wear a crown of laurel in this all-purple, gold-embroidered, triumphal toga. It was painted. It was regalia that identified him as a near divine or a near kingly figure. Even though he's just a Roman general, he was as close to a god or as close to being a king as he would po could possibly be when he was marching in that triumph. And at the end of the procession, the, this near divine figure would go up and offer sacrifice to the pagan god Jupiter. And so this whole thing you can imagine is quite the spectacle. But notice where Paul says his place is in this processional. Because Paul is, if, when he, the word that he uses here would have evoked the Roman triumph. That's what his readers would have heard. Notice where Paul says his place is in the processional. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Don't forget that Paul uses that first person plural in these chapters to refer to himself. We've talked about this before. So when he says Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, he means Christ always leads me in triumphal procession and spreads through me the fragrance of Christ, the knowledge of, of him everywhere. But notice that Paul, notice Paul's place. Paul is not one of the conquerors leading the procession. Paul is one of the conquered following along as a slave in the procession. Every time this word is used in ancient Greek literature and indeed in the New Testament, it's talking about those who have been conquered. And, and Paul is one of the conquered. I think Paul is trying to evoke in us the remembrance of how he was converted. Paul was marching to Damascus to kill Christians. And Christ showed up and conquered him. Changed his heart and made him his own. And how does Paul refer to, refer to himself? From now on, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ. And now Paul is saying, I'm following along in his triumphal procession. He's one of the conquered. And guess what the slaves could expect at the end of that procession, oftentimes? Execution. So if you're thinking this is like going from victory to victory, Paul is saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm one of the conquered in this procession. If you press any analogy, it will inevitably break down at points. But still, Paul in essence is saying this, Christ is the conqueror, I am the conquered, I am his slave, and if his conquest leads me to death, so be it. 
All the more glory and honor and praise to the Son of God who leads me in his triumph. If my suffering and humiliation redounds to his glory, then let it be. Paul says, if you look at the verse, he says, And through me Christ spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul is saying that his preaching of the gospel amongst the Gentiles is like a fragrance that anybody who in his hearing can experience. And if suffering for that gospel brings glory to Christ, then so be it. So you have to behold the heart of the Apostle Paul here. He's not seeking his own. He's not trying to advance his own name and fortune. He wants above all to see Christ and his gospel march forth in triumph. And if his own suffering brings that, then praise God. He regards himself a slave to the world's true and conquering king. And he knows his place. Is this how you think about your own life? I guarantee you, if an apostle thinks about himself like this, you and I need to be thinking about ourselves like this. Is this how we think about our own life vis-a-vis -vis the gospel? Are you willing to count everything else as lost compared to knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? Are you ready to take the hits for the truth of God's word when proclaiming and standing for that truth might lead you into a humiliating public spectacle? Is Christ worth it to you? That's the question. Are you thankful to be in this triumphal procession? Paul says it was worth it to him. And he's putting his confidence in his conquering and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is, are we doing that? <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul's triumph is in verses 12 through 14. But notice, secondly, Paul's revelation in verses 15 through 16. He says, for we are, everybody look at verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, verse 15 is just elaborating what he said in verse 14. Verse 14, he said, Through me, Christ spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And, and that fragrance is a metaphor for the divine revelation that comes through Paul as an apostle whenever he's preaching as an apostle. And so now Paul's declaring, I'm an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, Paul has preached and taught both to those who received his gospel and to those who reject his gospel. <clears throat> He's preached both to those who are being saved from sin and judgment and to those who are still in their sin and on the way to judgment. Both kinds of people have gotten a chance to experience the aroma of Christ in Paul's preaching. But they're nevertheless heading in different directions. They're going to different destinies. Why is that? Look at verse 16. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <clears throat> Notice the structure here. Guess what, Jim? It's a chiasm, okay? Uh, the ones who are being saved at the beginning there in verse 15 correspond with those who are going from life to life in verse 16. Those who are perishing in verse 15 correspond with those who are to the one of fragrance from death to death in verse 16. 
So you see what Paul's saying here. He's saying that people who hear the same message respond to it in different ways. Some people find it to be a pleasing, fragrant aroma, leading them from life to life, to eternal life even. Others find it to be a repugnant stench, leading them from death to even the second death in hell. They respond differently to the message because it smells differently to them. Do you see the metaphor here? No one who finds the gospel odor to be repugnant is going to come to it and receive it. That's his point. Some of you know that my mom and dad uh, recently had to flee my childhood home to get away from Hurricane Laura when it hit the coast of Louisiana several weeks ago. And they, they thought they were going to ride out the storm and stay home. And so they had made preparations leading up to the storm. They had stocked the deep freezer and the refrigerator with food. They had battened down the hatches and gotten a bunch of water, and they were ready for the storm to hit. But on the day that the storm was to hit, um, we all, all found out that the force and the speed was much more than any of us um, had been anticipating. And it was, it was just the storm was increasing dramatically. And so as that became clear that our little town was going to get pulverized, and it did get pulverized, my sister and some other family members and I prevailed upon my mom and dad to load up the van. They were caring for my ailing aunt at the time, to load her in the van and to load their things quickly and leave. And so that night, sure enough, um, when the outer bands of the storm were coming in, they, they left. And they stayed just ahead of the storm and they made it to Dallas. But get what the, guess what they didn't have time to do before they left? They didn't have time to empty their deep freeze and refrigerator. And sure enough, you know what happens in these storms? You lose power, and you know what happens in Louisiana heat when you don't empty your refrigerator? They were lucky. Um, they had friends who came and emptied that thing out while they were gone. I have smelled a refrigerator that was not emptied before, and it smells like rotting flesh when that food goes bad. My uncle, who also evacuated with them, uh, he, re he returned home after the storm, and he lives out on a, he has a, a barn with animals, and they live out in a rural area, and he's got horses and all kinds of chickens, all kinds of stuff out there. But they evacuated too at the last minute, and all he could do before he left was to let, when, when storms come like this, you have to let all the animals out because they can't be inside, because they could be killed if they're inside. So we let all the animals out, and so we went, but when he went back home, he had to go try to find all of his animals. You become legally liable if one of your animals is in the street and somebody hits it. So he's trying to find all of his animals, and he finds all of them except for one. All of his fences were destroyed. And so he thought, I just, I lost my horse. He, one, his one horse was gone. His barn was destroyed. Fence was destroyed. And he thought, I just, I lost one animal. Didn't know where it was. And they were there for about a day or so. It's in the Louisiana heat. And all of a sudden, there's a smell that starts to come from the barn. And that destroyed barn that they thought was empty was not empty. Their horse was in there. It was their old mare that they had, and that horse died when that barn fell. And so he had to go, and it was polluting the entire property. By that time, it was, there was, the, the horse was bloated. There was this stench over the whole property. He had to just get it away from the house. He had to... He had to go get his tractor and drag the carcass of that decaying flesh across two acres, acres of land, 
all the way to the very edge of the property. The gospel teaches us that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, and he rose again three days later to give us eternal life. If you're a sinner, and you are a sinner, you need this salvation. But you can't get it by working for it. You can only receive it by turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's a free gift. That's the message of the gospel. That's it. Some people hear that message, and it smells like warm dinner rolls coming out of the oven. It smells to them like monkey bread hot on the table on Christmas morning. When they hear the message, they can't wait to get more of it. And they embrace it and feast. But there are others who hear that same message, but it smells to them like that rotting carcass in the hot blazing sun. The call to confess and turn away from sin is like decaying flesh in the summer sun. And they want to get as far away from it as they can. And they are willing to oppose and to fight anyone who brings that message to them. Because they don't want to have anything to do with this rotting stench. And that's what Paul says is happening to him in this text. Some are receiving him and his message like dinner rolls and monkey bread. They're lapping it up. But there are others who are receiving his message like he's serving them rotting flesh. And every time he brings that carcass near them, they take it out on him. And he's got the scars to prove it. You just read the book of Acts, what happened to Paul when he goes and preaches the gospel. You read the end of this book, which we will eventually come to. And Paul says he was beaten 39 times, whipped, stoned, left for dead. Look what they did to him outside of Lystra. This is what's happening to Paul. And Paul says, even though this happens to him, even though he has this message, which really is like the sweet dinner rolls and like the monkey bread, it, that's what it is. Even though he has that message to proclaim, and even though people persecute him for it, he says, I'm going to preach that truth anyway. The only way to get the dinner rolls to God's people is for me to take my lumps from the people who don't receive it that way. But Paul says, I'm, I'm God's slave. He's conquered me, and if my suffering leads to his glory, then so be it. I embrace it for the glory of Christ. To some people, we are going to be a smell of from death to death. But for other people, with the same message, we will be the fragrance from life to life. And so the real question for us to consider as we think about this, the first big question, is how does this message smell to you? That's the first thing you've got to deal with. When you come to church and you hear the word preached, or when you open the Bible to read it for yourself, and you're confronted with God's word, are you smelling dinner rolls, or are you smelling rotting flesh? That's the question. Is the word sweet to your taste, or is it bitter and repugnant to you? The most important thing about you is how you respond to the message of this book. If it smells off to you, the problem is not the message. The problem is you. This is never wrong. 
there are parts of it that are going to rub you wrong. But it's not wrong. We're wrong. And this is here to help us be right. The good news, though, is that the gospel is for sinners. And if you found this message to be a fragrance from death to death, there is still time for you to repent and to believe. You can turn from your repugnance and turn to Jesus. That is what the Spirit of God enables you to do. For all of us in here who are followers of Christ, there's another question we have to to think of. Are we willing to stick with the gospel of Jesus to be identified with the word of Christ when people find it to be a fragrance from death to death? Would you be willing for folks to regard you as a reprehensible stench? That's the hard question for us because guess what? We all want to be dinner rolls to our friends and neighbors. Um, We would like to be influential and important. We don't like to smell like rotting carcass to everyone. But what if that message brings that kind of opprobrium upon us? Are we willing to go there? Are you ready for that? That's the salient question that you're going to have to answer. Otherwise, you may end up like the people that Paul describes in the last verse, verse 17. So we see Paul's triumph, Paul's revelation. Finally, verse 17, Paul's integrity. Paul's integrity has to do with his integrity in preaching the gospel because look what he says. For we are not like many, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Keep in mind, Paul's talking about his own apostleship here. He's talking about himself. He's saying, for I am not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as a man of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, I speak in Christ. Some people are going to hate this. Some people are going to love this. I'm speaking in the presence of God. I'm speaking as one who's been commissioned with a message, and I don't have the right to change the message. The whole world can change around me, but I can't change with it. I have to be conformed to the scripture. So when Paul talks about peddlers, he's drawing on the imagery of these hucksters in the marketplace who are selling items dishonestly. Maybe they're selling wine, but they're diluting it to to increase their profit. Or maybe they're selling grain, but their measures are weighted to cheat buyers of the grain. In other words, these were the kinds of people who were willing to do whatever they could to maximize profit. They weren't into honesty and truth. They were in it for the money. And Paul's saying, I was never like that when I preached the gospel to you. I was never in it for the money. I never diluted the gospel or corrupted it in any way in order to trick you into buying it. I always preached to you what Christ had revealed to me. I'm not like these other hucksters And there were other teachers going around who were like hucksters, who knew how to tickle people's ears. And Paul is saying, I'm not like these other guys who will tell you what you want to hear just to please you so that they can get something from you. Paul asserts his integrity in his gospel ministry in saying this. But he also reveals what the temptation is for anyone who teaches or shares the word of God with others. You know... 
that certain people aren't going to like certain parts of the gospel message. Especially those parts that spotlight their sin and their idols and the things that they need to turn from in, other to have, in order to have Jesus. Some people don't like those parts and they're going to receive those parts like it's a rotting carcass. What is the temptation for any follower of Christ when faced with people who hate the message like that? The temptation is to change the message, to fit the fallen tastes of unrepentant sinners. That's the temptation. And the idea is that if you can just tweak the message here or de-emphasize that bit over there, then maybe they won't find you and your message to be so repugnant. In other words, the temptation is to tweak the message to avoid opposition. And oh, how many people fall into this temptation. Some people build whole ministries around preaching this way. Some of you have never heard a sermon on divorce. The Bible talks about it. Why, are, why don't people talk about that? It's the temptation everywhere. Tweak the message, avoid the opposition. So much false teaching springs up from this very well, a desire not to offend people with the truth. We are not seeking out conflict for the sake of conflict. We are ambassadors of a king. We are slaves of a king. We have a message we didn't invent, and we don't have the right to change it. Paul says, I never did this. I never watered it down to please sinful tastes. I was never in this for myself and material gain. I was always in this for the glory of Christ, come what may. And so Paul's saying, I'm not like these peddlers. This is not what I do. But it's such a temptation, isn't it? Just tweak it. In his book, Bloodlines, John Piper talks about the Southern Baptist Church that he grew up in, in the Jim Crow era, South Carolina. He confesses that he was, at the time, a racist. He basically agreed with the wider culture's view on race. It, he, was, he was a fish in water, and that was his view. That was not his mother's view. His mother was from Pennsylvania. She was a fundamentalist Christian from the north. But in South Carolina, his church, like so many other churches of that era, was segregated by race. And as the civil rights movement heated up in the 50s and 60s, there were many churches that actually took congregational votes to bar integrated worship services. In other words, the congregations voted to keep black people out of the worship services. They, they, Piper says the view was that if they were coming, they'd just be coming to make, make trouble, so we're not going to have that. And so when he was a boy, his own Southern Baptist church voted to keep the blacks out. And his mother, his courageous mother, voiced the only dissenting vote in the church. Piper tells what happened when his own sister got married in that church. There was a black woman named Lucy who used to come over on Saturday to Piper's house to help his mother with the house. And they loved Lucy and Piper's mother invited Lucy's entire family to the wedding at that church. 
But when they arrived at the church, it was a, uh, a bit of a shock to all the people there. And Piper says this. I'm just going to read to you from his book. He says, I remember an incredibly tense and awkward moment as they came in the door of the foyer, which must have taken incredible courage. The ushers did not know what to do. One was about to usher them to the balcony, which had barely been used since the church was built. My mother, all five feet two inches of her, intervened and by herself took them by the arm and seated them on the main floor of the sanctuary. She was, under God, the seed of my salvation in more ways than one. As I watched that drama, I knew deep down that my aptitudes, that my attitudes were an offense to my mother and to her God. He's talking about his racial attitudes at the time. Oh, how thankful I am for the conviction and courage of my gutsy Yankee fundamentalist mother. His mom was this consistent Christian who abominated racism, and she saw it not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. And so she walked in step with the gospel and against the grain of her culture. And in that setting, that kind of a stand was a fragrance of death to many people. But Piper says that that fragrance of death was the stand that became the seed of his own salvation. She was willing to be despised and shamed so long as she was exalting Christ, in other words. She didn't water down the truth to please the sinful tastes of racists. Can you imagine the courage that that would have taken in that setting? You can imagine it because there are little tests like that now that you have to face. And I'm talking about tests when it comes to faithfulness to the truth of God and faithfulness to the gospel. Little tests where you have to choose between a clear gospel witness and saving face. Whether you're going to stand for this truth or just bow down to some other secular false ideology. How many of you have ever been faced with conflict over the truth of the Bible? Whenever the opposition comes, the temptation will be for you to change the message. To fail to stand. In order not to have to be associated with God's truth when important people you know hate God's truth. And who you bow to in those moments are proving who your Lord is. Whether or not this is going to be the standard of truth for you or whether or not people's tastes are going to be the standard of truth for you. Some of you face this pressure at work. Some of you face this pressure at home. How are you responding when the pressure is put upon you? That's the key issue. Paul's integrity was that he never watered down the message. Nor did he water down his own behavior in ways that would distort the truth of God. He always spoke and stood for the truth. So yes, Christ is leading Paul in triumph. He is. But Paul is the conquered slave bringing glory to his king through his suffering. He's taken the hits for the gospel. He's willing to take the hits 
If that exalts his king, then he's ready to go. Is this where we're ready to go? Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would help us not to be conformed to the world, not to give in to the temptation to listen to the tastes of men and women who don't know you and then to trim our sails to fit what they want. Lord, help us not to give in to those temptations. I pray you'd make us clear-eyed and sobered about the truth. Help us to live the truth. Help us to speak the truth. Help us to not be cantankerous cranks about it. Help us to be winsome and persuasive. But Father, help us to make our stand. Come what may. Help us to be willing to be a fragrance of life to life and for others from death to death when we share this message that you revealed to Paul. And Lord, I pray that we would be in that triumphal procession with Jesus. And that by everything we do and say and suffer, we would be seen as his captives, as his people, as his servants. And that all glory would redound to him, our great and conquering king. Father, we are grateful that you have conquered our hearts. You have transformed our indifference into love for you and for the gospel. And I pray that you would make this truth grow. And that it would be a tree that is larger than any other. And that the birds would come and nest in its branches. Father, we want to be fruitful like that. To see the nations streaming in to bow their knee to our king. So Lord, we ask you to do it. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.